Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In my more than 30 years of traveling, I've found that the best souvenirs aren't usually the photos you take or the gifts you buy. They're the changes that happen in the way you hear music, in the taste you develop for different foods, in the faces you'll never forget, and in the delight you develop from seeing the world on its own terms. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're setting aside some extra time to spend the hour taking your calls and responding to your emails. We want to hear your travel tips, your ideas and questions for planning your next vacation, and even the lessons you've picked up from the faux pas you made on your last trip. Or we can simply inspire each other to consider a different corner of the world for our next trip. Our Travelers Roundtable has a place for you. Thanks for joining us today as we talk travel and share ideas. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're taking an hour for you. That's right, today's special guest is you. We'll check in with our listeners on the phone and catch up on some of your email. No special theme. We'll just share stories from our travels, inspire each other to explore new places, and step outside of our comfort zones to stretch our perspectives. To get us started, let's hear some of your stories about faux pas you've experienced in your travels. Share some lessons you've learned from the Traveler's School of Hard Knocks. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And you can always post your thoughts anytime in our radio feedback forum. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. And Rick is on the line in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hi, Rick. Hello, hello. What have you learned from your uh, mistakes in understanding the cultures and so on? My wife and I were traveling uh, in Germany about a year ago, and we were jumping from train to train, and uh, at one point we got felt very lucky we could get on the first car. We noticed a little sign that was on the window, and I don't remember the exact word, but like Rorschach or something, mm-hmm. or, or Rauch something, which means smoke. So my poor German uh, understanding at the time, I thought it meant no smoking. So we got on the car, and uh, nobody else was smoking, and I don't smoke, and my wife didn't. And I thought nothing of it until the uh, conductor came by and checked all the tickets, and it turns out we were on the wrong car. How can we that be? Had to get our, we had to take our luggage off and get back onto another car further down the train. Well, the sign said no smoking. Why did that matter about the destination? It turns out it didn't really say don't smoke. It was the name of the city that that particular car was going to go. Well, we didn't understand, like in the U.S., trains go from city to city. Okay. But in Europe, cars go from city to city, and they'll split a train up in the middle. Okay. And one car will go to one city, and one will go to another. That's that's a very important tip, Rick. I've noticed that in my own experience. You can be on a train that's just jam-packed, and you can walk through six or seven cars looking for a place to sit, and all of a sudden there's an empty car, and you go, oh, man, this is too good to be true. And you sit down in that car, and you've got to realize this car is likely going someplace else where nobody wants to go, and it'll uh, break off at the next stop, and you could be heading on your way to uh, no smoking. Yes, and... Uh, so there's a town that's... Nichtrauchen would be the German word for no smoking. Well, I know that now. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, somewhere in Germany there's a town that, that looks a lot like that, huh? Yes, yes, there is. Another point of confusion for travelers in Germany is Ausfahrt. Ausfahrt is the German word for exit. Yes. And if you know that from driving in Germany, and a lot of people joke that uh, all exits lead to a little town called Ausfahrt. That's right. That's but that's right. not the case at all. All right. Hey, well, thanks for your lesson. You're very welcome. All right. Happy travels. Bye. Linda in Linwood, Washington, writes about her faux pas. My friend and I traveled from Copenhagen to Rome and stayed two days in Siena because we thought it was so beautiful. While in the old medieval city touring the shops, we stopped for a very good pizza and later decided to get a coffee and a gelato before we cut our cab back to our hotel. We were seated at a nice table in the courtyard with a plaid tablecloth, and the waiter came out to take our order. When he realized we were not ordering an entire five-course meal, but wanted only coffee and gelato, he snapped the tablecloth from under the plates for everyone to watch and gestured us inside into the kitchen to a table and chairs there. There were no other customers inside. We understood that this must have been a very rude thing that we did, and we were being punished like small children. When we got the bill, it was the same price as the entire five-course meal. Ooh, there's a add insult to injury. 
Mark in San Luis Obispo in California shares his faux pas. On my second trip backpacking through Italy at age 18, I ordered a steak with a meal at a restaurant in Rome. I emphasized to the waiter that I wanted the meat well done. I didn't realize that, for Italians, they prefer their meat much more rare than I was used to. When my plate arrived with a very rare steak, I sent it back to be cooked again. Big mistake. The kitchen was about ten yards away from my table, and I heard a horrendous, Ah! The kitchen door swung wide open, and a robust Italian cook grimaced out the door as the waiter pointed at my table. I saw him through the kitchen window, slap the steak onto the grill, and, and, we never, and he never took his eyes off me. The waiter brought back the steak with potatoes on the side as the cook stepped out of the kitchen to watch me, still frowning. I had already eaten several courses. My eyes were bigger than my stomach. Nevertheless, I swallowed every bite, meat, potatoes, and all. It was actually very good, and cleaned my plate with some bread. The cook smiled widely and nodded his head, patting me on the back. I learned my lesson and found that a clean plate can open doors around the world. Femenischetti e giovinotti, avete bonda, faciti rota. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking cultural faux pas, and all of us in our travels have made a few uh, little mistakes because we don't completely understand the culture. And it's your time to share your lessons. We've got Rachel on the line, and uh, Rachel's in Chicago. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Very well. Big fan of yours. Thank you for uh, sharing uh, some of your embarrassing moments in travels oh, yeah. on our show. Tell us about your story. One of the very many is, it always has to do with language or often. The word in Spanish for preservatives is not the word that sounds like it. So one of my friends actually did this first, and then I was extra careful, and then did it again myself, where she was at dinner with a number of friends, and remarked on how everything's so fresh and good, like that the bread has no preservatives, but she said preservativos instead of conservadores, and so she actually told them that the bread's so good it doesn't have any condoms in it. Oh, that sounds yeah. just uh, not my idea of a appetizing piece of bread. Exactly. So that's one of many. You learned a little bit of your language that way, so conservativo would be preservatives? Conservador. Conservador. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, all right, Rachel, thanks. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Travelers are all in the same school of hard knocks, and it's okay to compare notes. That's just what we're doing this week on Travel with Rick Steves, because our special guest is you. And Sue's on the line in Carlsbad, California. Hi, Sue. Hi, Rick. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for your call. What have you learned from your travels in the areas well, of cultural faux pas? Well, I was traveling in Thailand with my son, and I love getting massages, and of course Thailand is noted for massages. And when we were on an island in Koh Samui, I had a massage basically every day, and they cost seven bucks. And so the last day before I left to come back to the States, my son and I decided to have our one last massage, and we were walking around, and where the hotel was situated, there was a lot of massage parlors, but we were told not to go there because they were really prostitution halls. So we went to another area, and we saw a massage, and we went up, and we, things just didn't look right, but we kept on, we wanted our massage, and so my son kept on saying, yeah, let's go for it, Mom. So we ended up having our massage, but it was the most stressful massage because we knew afterwards, or basically even before, that it was a prostitution so you're, massage. So you were being massaged by a prostitute? I think so. <laughs> and was it, it was in a, like a brothel? I guess, um, but it, it was like a regular massage parlor, only there was lots of different rooms. And my son did say he was, um, you know, the propositioned, s- <laughs> so to speak. So that kind okay. of solidified it. The same thing happened to me in in Thailand, and I went into a because uh, mas- you know you get a massage when you're in Thailand, and I you get it on the beach when you're in Koh Samui, right, right? Right. And that's just a casual thing. And uh, I met a friend, and he took me to this massage parlor, and 
there's all these girls. They looked like prostitutes, really, and you just would choose a girl. But he kept saying, it's no it's no sex, it's only a massage. You know, I had I chose a girl, and it was a delightful massage, and there was no sex at all. And I thought, well, I, I left that place not knowing exactly what had happened, but uh, it was a nice massage. <laughs> That's and, the kind of thing. I mean, the girls that we went to didn't look like prostitutes. No, and your happy ending is just, yeah. thank you very much, bye-bye. Bye, yeah. But we kind of laughed, and then we went back to the hotel, He's in the Peace Corps, and um, all his friends said, you took your mother to uh, <laughs> now the Peace <laughs> to a Corps, brothel. The, the Peace Corps workers are, are usually a little more uh, savvy than not knowing when they're going into a brothel. Or not, well, but... except they were uh, Peace Corps workers in Nepal, and they were evacuated out of Nepal. Okay, so they were, they were rookies in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say if you want the unstressful massage, you have it on the beach. Would that right. be a good lesson? <laughs> Very nice. Okay, well, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Bye, Sue. Bye. Faux pas. As you travel, you know, it's easy to mess up. We don't understand these cultures, and we make some innocent mistakes. We've had some travelers that have sent us emails uh, sharing their faux pas. Nancy in Aurora, Illinois, she says, While in Italy, my husband developed athlete's foot, which I couldn't find in the dictionary. I told the pharmacist in Italian that my husband has mushrooms growing between his toes. It worked. We got athlete's foot powder. Good idea, Nancy. I don't care if there's powder on my nose I don't care if my hairdo isn't placed I've lost the very meaning of repose It never entered Lydia in Santa Rosa, California, emails us a tip on pizzas in Italy. In Italy, don't ask to have your pizza pre-sliced. They look at you like you're either crazy or lazy. Being an American, we're used to pre-sliced pizza when we order. In Italy, you're given a knife and a fork and expected to eat the whole pizza by yourself. So, if you plan on sharing, slice it yourself. Susie in Paris shares these tips on traveling in France. Number one, greet the shopkeeper in French when you enter. And when it's your turn to order at the bakery, always say merci, au revoir. Number two, white tennis shoes and t-shirts with large lettering or logos on them announce to everyone around that you're an American tourist. If you want to blend in, dress in subtle, solid colors and dark shoes. Number three, it's easy to speak too loudly on the metro, so keep your voice down. Number four, Eating in a restaurant in France is an experience, not an everyday event for people, so they take their time, and so should you. Restaurants aren't pushing you to leave. Slow service in France is good service. You won't get the bill until you ask for it. And finally, of course, no matter what country you're in, learn a few tidbits of the language and try to use them, especially when in restaurants. Travel tips from Susie, who's learning lots during her stay in Paris. More of your calls and emails are just ahead. It's a special hour of Travel with Rick Steves where you are the guest. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're making extra time for your calls and emails. We're finding out where our traveling listeners have been, what they've discovered and experienced, and examining where your travel dreams may be taking you. 
877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com. That's our email address. And we got Stephanie on the line in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for your call. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I've got a couple questions for you about Portugal. Uh, my best friend and I are headed to Portugal to celebrate our 30th birthdays, and we are looking for a place to spend Liberty Day. In Portugal, what would you recommend for the uh, best place to spend Liberty Day? So Liberty Day is their national holiday, is that right? Yes. Okay. The day celebrating the Carnation Revolution. Wow, that's great. I know the main drag in Lisbon is called Avenue Liberdade, so they love their liberty just like we do. If I was in Portugal, you know, liberty, I would be in the capital city. And the great thing about Portugal is there's just a vibrancy in Portugal now. It's, it's been the uh, happy recipient of a lot of money from the European Union. And when Europe first uh, was uniting a few years ago, they recognized the weakest links in their union, and it was Portugal and Ireland economically. And they got a lot of money from Germany and from France. And uh, just a couple of months ago, I was in Portugal, and all of the buildings, the old buildings, were scaffolded. And I said, what's the deal with all the scaffolding? And they said, oh, we're running out of our little t- window of time where we can use European money to renovate our buildings. So everybody is scaffolded and, and spiffing the place up. Today, uh, Portugal has a very uh, impressive economy. Just a decade ago, it felt like sort of a little bit of the third world in Europe, but today it's doing just fine. And I would be definitely on the on the curb there on the, on the Grand Boulevard for Portugal's uh, however they celebrate their uh, Liberty Day. That's a great recommendation. I'll definitely take that to heart. Any uh, One last question for you. Um, we are considering renting a car. Would you rent a car to travel through Portugal? Well, Portugal statistically is considered the most dangerous place to drive in Western Europe. Um, I wouldn't say that means don't drive in Portugal. I would just think that means drive very carefully, especially on small roads and especially after dark. There's a lot of... uh, Oh, it's just dangerous after dark on the small roads in Portugal. I felt a little uncomfortable that way. Having said that, there's a lot of new freeways in Portugal. I just mm-hmm. was, uh, again, it's this European money. I remember when there were literally no freeways in Portugal. And today, there's freeways everywhere. On my last trip, day after day, the roads were messing up my itinerary. I was arriving in town hours before I thought I would. And uh, for every uh, little road trip I made, there was a new freeway. And with every new freeway, there's a European flag that says, brought to you by your friends in the European Union. So getting around mm-hmm. Portugal is much easier by car. Having said that, you, the last thing you want is a car in Lisbon. Uh, right. <laughs> Lisbon is a horrible place to drive and park. I've found in the parking lots in Lisbon charge more progressively for each hour you stay there. It might be reasonable for the first hour, but they have a, a very uh, big financial penalty for anybody who wants to park for a long period of time in the town center. Pick up your car on your way out of town. Personally, I pick my car up at the airport. In so many cases, I find it's easy to get to the airport by public transportation, uh, or in Portugal and Lisbon, I would just use a taxi, and from there, you're on a, on a made road right out of town. So do Lisbon and then pick up your car on the way out of town and you'll enjoy having the mobility a car offers you for traveling around. Do remember when you are renting a car, if you rent from a big company, it may have 50 or 60 rental offices in the country. You can pick up your car and drop it off at any of those different locations if you're renting with Hertz or Avis. And that's one reason to pay a little bit more to go with a bigger company is that you have the flexibility to drop it in different spots. Let's say you want to do the big city and then you want to tool around the countryside and do a lot of car sightseeing and then you want to lay on the beach for three or four days. You yeah. might want to pick your car up leaving Lisbon and drop it in Lagos on the south coast uh, before you're going to lay on the beach and not want to be paying for a car rental. That's a good point. All right. I appreciate the feedback. Have a thanks, good trip. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye now. Nancy in North Saanich, British Columbia, Canada. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Rick. North Saanich, where's that? Mm. Just outside of Victoria, if you know where the ferry goes from Vancouver Island across to Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, North Saanich is the municipality just outside there. By the ferry? By the ferry. So you drive from there past all those billboards to get into Victoria? Exactly right. What is the deal? You've got this gorgeous Vancouver Island, and then you get off the ferry, and you feel like you're in a wonderland, and then you go through this hellish canyon of like... 300 big, giant, noisy billboards. I mean, you should remember that. <laughs> um, it's um, it's a, an Indian reserve, a, a First Nations uh, property, and they have different rules, and ah. they are allowed to put those up in that short kilometer of road, and it generates a lot of revenue for them. I bet it does. Isn't that something you'd remember that? We saw you the last time you were in Victoria, or oh, perhaps I, the second to last time. I love going up to Canada to give talks to so many good travelers there. We enjoy your sense of discovery. We find your information to be so accurate. We've referred loads of people to your book and your shows, and thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. So what are your travel plans? We, we are leaving two weeks tomorrow for um, 
initially London, but we're going on to spend a month in Eastern Europe or Central Europe, depending on who you talk to. Croatia, Slovenia, a little bit in Budapest, and then we're taking the train back to London. The main focus is two weeks in Slovenia and Croatia. We're going to be we're actually flying into Venice. We've got a fabulous 10-pound flight um, from London into Venice. And we're going to take, go by train over the top to Ljubljana. Mm-hmm. And we're going to pick up a car there, go down the coastline as far as probably split, and then leave the car there and travel by public transportation or perhaps a hired guide down to Dubrovnik, try to get out to Var and Milyet a little bit. Right. You know, um, I had an interesting situation last time I was in Croatia with a car. It was a headache in Split. I wish I would have just um, got to Split and hired a taxi if necessary to direct me to my car rental place, turn my car in there, do Split. That's the major town of the Dalmatian coast in Croatia without a car, and then take the boat from there down to Korčula, and then from Korčula catch a bus on into Dubrovnik. Uh, that would make more sense without a car, that part there. Right. We don't want the car beyond split. No, that's that's but good we, thinking. But because of the pricing, you know, to have it for three or four, even five days versus the 14 days. Yeah. But you might you might actually find it's cheaper just to rent the car and uh, just park it somewhere in split, do the part without the car, without the car, get back to split, pick up your car and carry on to the that's, national park in the interior. That's and, uh, exactly what we want. You've that, just reinforced. I have to tell you, since I, I emailed initially to the show, um, we've, of course, continued to do some research and, in fact, have your book now. And, I don't know, your book just about answers all the questions that we had. Oh, thank you. Well, that's, that's but, our challenge. Is I'm, I'm there, clueless, all confused like anybody else, and I think, this is for the birds. Let's figure this one out. So, and there's, you know, there's certain challenges that any visitor to Dubrovnik or the Dalmatian coast will encounter, and uh, I hope that's helpful. So that It's enormously like... helpful. Do you know anything about doing any kayaking in the region? either on a lake or ocean? I don't, but I think that there is a thriving sort of uh, outdoors industry there to try to boost their tourism. You know, they they, lo- they were really into tourism before that uh, horrible war with Kosovo and everything, and now the, it's peacetime again, and very slowly the tourism is coming back, and they're doing a lot of creative things to stoke their tourist industry, and there's plenty of small-time operators that you can um, hire for day trips, you know, from out from Dubrovnik or out from Split. And I'm sure that when you ask locally, you'll find plenty of options for river rafting or uh, Mediterranean Sea kayaking or whatever. But to me, there's something I've warmed up to lately is the value of having your own private guide. What a splurge. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, these guys are small-time operators. They're historians. They're writers. They're poets or whatever, and they work uh, as much as they can as tour guides. And, you know, what's interesting is in the in the eastern countries, like in Slovenia or uh, Croatia, that's where you need a guide more, and that's where the guides are less expensive. And you can actually hire guides with cars in much of Eastern Europe for far less than you'd hire guides without cars in the West, and they're more valuable to you in the more challenging and you know difficult countries to travel in. So I well, think that's I, very good advice. That is probably what we will do then, um, take the ferry down to Dubrovnik from Split, and, and hire a guide to take us up that coastline, that yeah. beautiful coastline, so that neither of us has to be driving. Oh, it's beautiful. And you know, when all the dust settles, it's not that much more expensive than hiring a car yourself. Which we'll be waiting for us in split. That's right. Well, good luck with your trip. Oh, we're, we're so excited. All right, thanks, Nancy. Thanks for your help, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye. We're spending today on Travel with Rick Steves with our listeners at 877-333-RICK and catching up on our emails at radio at ricksteves.com. Chris on the line in San Jose, California. Hi, Chris. Hi, Rick. It's nice to talk to you, or I should say it's nice to talk to you again. We actually met in the Whispering Gallery in uh, St. Paul's in London while you were filming, I think, what became Royal London. Were you the man I asked to whisper into the wall? I was the one, yes. Oh, man, that must have been six or eight years ago. That was was It has been a while ago, but I have friends who keep seeing that episode as they show that. You know, days. you're the silent hero of my TV series, because when I'm traveling, I don't have a bunch of bit players, and I just look around for some <laughs> friendly-looking tourist, and I go, hey, there's a guy that looks like a PBS viewer. And uh, I asked you to do me a favor, and, and you did a very nice job. And I don't think you were faking it. I think you could hear your, your partner's voice whispering through the wall. You or... can hear my daughter's voice, uh, <laughs> not liking the fact that it's 365 steps left to go there. Uh, right. That was, uh, I remember climbing up there. I was exhausted. Then I my, <laughs> my cameraman had the camera and the tripod, oh, I believe, and that was something. But I was astounded as how well we could demonstrate that. Now, just so, for the listeners, this is the top of the Dome of St. Paul's in, in London, this incredible church, neoclassical dome. And it's so well designed that if you whisper on one side of the wall, 
for some reason, the, the voice carries all the way around and somebody directly opposite you can hear you like you're standing three feet away instead of, I don't know, 50 yards away. That was really quite astounding, wasn't it? It was indeed. All right. Well, what, is your, uh, what are your thoughts? Where are your travel dreams taking you now? Well, I had a suggestion. Uh, mm-hmm. we, you were talking recently about the Four Corners area, and the um, slot canyons came up as something to see in the Four Corners area. And the one canyon that didn't get mentioned that I think it's, uh, your listeners would like to know about is Antelope Canyon. I don't know if you've been huh. there. No, I don't know that, but that sounds like... I was just so intrigued by that conversation we had. So, Southwest United States, uh, Four Corners area, you're recommending Antelope Canyon. And Antelope Canyon is probably the easiest of all the slot canyons to get to and the most accessible for people who aren't necessarily hikers and one of the most beautiful. Wow, that sounds like... It's on a Navajo um, National Park. Right. And it's run, actually, there's two different sections, Lower Antelope Canyon and Upper Antelope Canyon. And if you've seen pictures of the canyons in Arizona and the red carved by the water, the red sandstone, a lot of those pictures are from Antelope Canyon. And it's just a few miles outside of Page, Arizona. And you just pay a small fee. And I would recommend people actually go to both. The Lower Antelope Canyon is a little harder to get into. You have to be able to climb down ladders. And you literally go into this canyon that at the top, when you go in, is about 18 inches wide. Wow. And you kind of shimmy down in there, and then you're, you're seeing where the light is playing off this red sandstone as the water has carved it out. And Upper Antelope Canyon is more touristy, but also a lot easier to get into. You just walk straight in. You don't have to climb down things. And so that's one of the reasons a lot of the tourists go there. But, yeah, if people are interested in the slot canyons, you have to make sure the weather's good because you don't want to be in a slot canyon when there's rain mm-hmm. uh, because they're carved by flash floods. But uh, if, you're, uh, if you're there and it's not rainy, the, the slot canyons are just wonderful, and you have to bring a camera if you go into the oh, slot canyon. it sounds canyons. like a wonderland for a photographer. Oh, it's just, it's gorgeous. Um, I think it's Ansel Adams said it, that one of the keys to taking beautiful pictures is to stand in the right spot, and one of those spots is huh. both lower and upper uh, Antelope Canyon. Be there around noon right. as the shafts of light are coming in from the top of the canyon. I was going to say the other key would be to be in the right spot, but to be in the right spot at the right time when right. the light is coming in. I know with my, with my cameraman when we're doing our public television TV show, if the light is good, nothing else matters. He's leaping over hedges to chase these beautiful images uh, because it's magic hour with the light. Right, exactly. Yeah. And Lower Antelope Canyon, I'd recommend people get there as soon as they can in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. Or when I went there... It was basically the first hour we had the canyon or this, it's almost like a crack in the ground, really, that you're in, uh, to ourselves. Wow. And really, the the tourists didn't get there till maybe 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, the majesty of the place is much nicer when it's all yours, I would imagine. Oh, it's just wonderful. And you didn't have to worry about, you know, who you did and didn't get in your your pictures. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. All right. Happy travels. Bye. And we got Jennifer on the line in Chesapeake, Virginia. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Rick. You bet. What's on your mind? I'm an artist who's interested in artist residencies or art trips where um, people can get art instruction, like from a painter, um, as well as maybe visit museums and galleries. Um, I've looked online at different tours that do this, but they're all so expensive. Um, Are there any tours that do something similar for a more modest price? Boy, to be in the care of a good artist, I think, would be very expensive. Um, I did something similar looking for a cooking school in Paris and in Florence Mm -hmm. with my wife and daughter, and I was pretty shell-shocked at how pricey it was. It was Mm -hmm. a good value, but, you know, a a good cook's going to charge 500 bucks a day to let you pal around with them, and uh, that's probably the same thing with an artist. I went to an artist um, studio in Florence to make a fresco once. Oh, okay. And this was wonderful. You know, we all of us people who love art, we look at all these great frescoes, but to actually make one and to do the cartoon and then to prick little holes in it and put it up against the wet plaster and powder it so the the colored dust goes through the holes and onto the wet plaster and then color <laughs> it in and mix the pigment and do all that kind of stuff. Now I have a much better understanding of what frescoes are all about and right. that was a beautiful thing and I was all excited about recommending this to my travelers and then I realized what the price was. And I thought, well, that's just out of range of most people. So mm-hmm. I don't know how you're going to find affordable, real, hands-on, one-on-one art expertise to uh, sort of coach you in Europe. On the other hand, there's plenty of great artistic experiences. You go to places that inspired the artists. You go to their homes right. and so on. And, and, and that, to me, is, is uh, probably better. And then do your art studying back at home. 
I, that's what I did actually with our last trip. We recently got back from uh, Cinque Terre, and I've been starting some paintings. There's a man who runs the cheapest hotel in uh, Rio Maggiore. We he, stayed in Rio Maggiore. Above, on the top of the town, this guy, right next to, uh, right on the top of the town, he runs this great hotel. And, not a great hotel, it's like a funky hotel that's kind of like almost a youth hostel, but double rooms instead of dorms. And he's got his easel out and all of his paints, and he's got this incredible Mediterranean view. And he's just uh, really got a nice situation for himself. You know, you might be able to find a bohemian like that and, and uh, paint with him, but to get a, a, a well-established artist to give you private lessons, that's going to be expensive. Right. Okay. But as an artist, did you go around and, and collect sketches and photographs for ideas of art to do uh, when you got home? Yes, yeah, especially photographs. I uh, came back with probably about 250 photos. And <laughs> Is that what an artist does, is you take photographs of places that inspire you, and then you go home, and in the, in the convenience of your own studio, you actually do the painting? Yeah, that's what I've been doing, and yeah. it's been great. So it kind of extends the trip, you yeah. know, it wasn't just the 10 days that, you know, I'm living the trip now as I go through the photos and oh. the paintings. I'm envious of artists who can do that. <laughs> do you know Alphonse Mucha, the great Art Nouveau painter from uh, Prague? Mm, no. He went to, uh, he did this epic um, 20 giant canvases, the story of the Slavic people, and he went to Moscow, and this is like 1910 or something, and he photographed peasants on Red Square. And uh, they show his photographs that he took back to his studio in Czech Republic and finished off that way. So ever since there's been cameras, there have been artists going around taking photographs, and it's not a cheap trick. I guess that's what artists do so they can get back to the studio, right? Right. <laughs> Good. What's your, what, what, have you visited some artists' homes that you liked? Um, I've just become uh, more of a professional artist recently, so I'm trying to get into it more. Okay. Um, but we did, uh, when we were in Italy, we did see the uh, museum, the Brera Gallery in Milan. Oh, yeah. So that, that was great. That's nice because I think it's associated with a university and an art uh, faculty in a university, so it's a teaching museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have an art school there. So a lot of students. It's fun, to, fun to go downstairs and see all the students, and then the uh, mm -hmm. cheapest coffee yeah. in town and the coffee machines, and then the students are <laughs> sitting up their easels in front of these Raphaels and Perugino's and so on. Yeah. Next time you're over there, go to some artist homes. I, I just get such an insight into an artist's inspiration by going to their home. I think the most impressive home I ever went to was the home of Salvador Dali in mm, Catalonia, okay. in Spain, and you just uh -huh. you get a real feeling for this man's passion and the way he connected with nature and his friends and everything, and then there it is in his art. Yeah, I, I will definitely do that. I'd like to visit Spain one day. All right, Jennifer, <laughs> if I find a great artist who would uh, have a budget rate for a student to follow him around, I'll let you know. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Good luck. Bye. Okay, thanks. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you everything. More of your calls and emails are just ahead in this special full hour with our listeners. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're spending today on Travel with Rick Steves with our listeners at 877-333-RICK and catching up on our emails at radio at ricksteves.com. Thanks for joining us. We have Cleon on the line from Salt Lake City, Utah. Hi, Cleon. Hello. So happy to talk with you and uh, be able to pick that wise brain of yours. Oh, pick away. <laughs> we are... Uh, we did a three-week trip in um, Europe as kamikaze tourists, as you might call it, right. uh, in the summer of '04. Um, so as we plan a trip that will be shorter into Scandinavia, I've got some questions on how to possibly time it because we have to condense it a little bit more. Right. I'm going to have seven or eight days once um, we're actually coming out of Russia, but mm -hmm. once we get to Helsinki... Um, we'll have about seven or eight days to cover Scandinavia. Okay. And we flying. leave out of, stock, uh, out of Copenhagen. Flying home from Copenhagen. Wow, what an exciting opportunity. You'll be in Russia. You're going into Scandinavia. You've got about eight days. You'll probably want to spend right. the first day eating salads in Helsinki. After being in Russia, you, just, you get to the Scandinavia, and it's just like, wow, fresh, fun food. <laughs> Okay, uh -huh. so there's there's that little bit of a jolt when you get back in. I know I, I would say uh, from Saint Petersburg in Russia. Yeah. And uh -huh. how how are you getting to Helsinki? 
by night train. Night train. Oh, that's so exciting. Night okay. train. Probably night train from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Night train from uh, St. Petersburg, Helsinki. And I've been considering that cruise that would take us into Stockholm overnight. You could do that. Yeah. Well, here's what you'd want to do. Uh, absolutely, you do the cruise. I would. I would. Let me just think out loud here for you. You got Helsinki is worth a day of sightseeing. From uh-huh. Helsinki, you could side trip to Tallinn. It's a 90-minute hydrofoil ride from Helsinki, and it's a very good day trip from Helsinki. A lot of Finnish people go over to Tallinn just to get their hair done. It's so cheap over there. Wow. And it's uh, just a, a fun little side trip, and it's Tallinn is really quite exotic. Uh, from Helsinki, you could take the night boat to Stockholm, and Stockholm used to be connected by uh, to Oslo by an overnight train, but because trains are going so fast now, it's it's not long enough to do overnight. So it would be a late afternoon, early evening train to Oslo. Okay. And how long would you stay in Stockholm? Would you overnight there? Well, I'm going to do the whole big picture, and then we'll have to do our prioritizing. You called yourself, uh, jokingly, a kamikaze sightseer. So let's just assume you're going to do this in a blitz sort of fashion, and then we can pair back and get it into a more reasonable speed. But from Oslo, the best, most exciting 24 hours is called Norway in a Nutshell. And that's the scenic train ride all the way to Bergen, arriving at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You'd get six hours in Bergen, and then you could take the overnight train back to Oslo if you wanted, or you could fly to Copenhagen from there, which I think might be smart. So if you were to break this all out, I would spend one night in Helsinki, and that would be two days in Helsinki, Uh and I would put myself in a nice hotel because you're going to want a good night's rest, but I would spend one day sightseeing in Helsinki and one day with a side trip over to Tallinn, and then I would take the boat ride overnight to Stockholm. And this is like a floating casino luxury resort. Uh, it's just a treat to go on the on the cruise from Helsinki to Stockholm through the most scenic island archipelago anywhere in Europe, I would say. Uh, great feasts and uh, dancing and duty-free shopping, and the, the Scandinavians just love it. And the boat ride ticket itself is quite cheap because they actually make more money on the duty-free shopping than they do on the ticket price. Now, do you pass all of those islands in the night or in the light? You pass the islands uh, as you're coming in in the morning, uh, okay. approaching Stockholm. So if you're into that, it would be delightful to get up early with the crack of dawn and watch as the sun rises and you go through this dreamy archipelago coming into Stockholm. You'll also see beautiful islands as the sun's going down in Helsinki as you're leaving. Okay. Now you'd want to spend, I would spend two days in Stockholm with uh, 3 o'clock on that second day. I would take the evening train over to Oslo, arriving in Oslo about 9 p.m., and then I would have uh, one day in Oslo, and I would do that uh, Norway in a nutshell trip over to Bergen. And then I would, personally, I would fly from Bergen to Copenhagen. Ask your travel agent about extending your flight. I imagine you're, you'd have an SAS flight from uh, Bergen into Copenhagen. That would probably cost you $200. And okay. that would be better than going back to Oslo and then all the way down to Copenhagen. So if you had eight days, a couple days in Copenhagen at the end, you could do that. It's gonna, you're going to need a, a vacation when you're done. Right. But those are the big highlights of Scandinavia right there. You got Helsinki, Tallinn, Stockholm, Oslo, the fjords of Norway, Bergen, which was the uh, historic capital of Norway before Oslo. And Bergen was an important German workaholic trading town, uh, part of the Hanseatic League. And uh, from there, you'd go down to Copenhagen, which is the greatest city to see in Scandinavia. If you were to spend two days in any particular city, I think Copenhagen would deserve it. It's really a delight. So, you know, that's it's probably crazy to go so fast, so you need to do some studying and cut something out. But right. don't hesitate to uh, take advantage of the little one-way commuter flights that are all over Scandinavia. They're surprisingly reasonable these days. That's what I looked at the SAS side, and it looked they looked fairly reasonable. Oh, and it's such a convenience. You know, I, I flew from Lithuania to Copenhagen last time, and it was just... I couldn't believe it. In in 45 minutes, I had made the biggest transportation hurdle on my whole vacation, and it, and it was effortless. So you you would recommend going from Stockholm to Oslo by train? You could fly, but when all the dust settles, it's just as fast to take the train, really, when you consider getting out to the airports and back. And then Oslo to Bergen, you could fly, but the most scenic train ride in northern Europe is the train ride through the mountains that connects Oslo to Bergen with that good dose of fjord country. So I think you got um, it's sort of an embarrassment of riches there. Right. All right, Cleon, have a good trip. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks for your call. Uh Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Carmen from um, Old Tapan, New Jersey, emails us. Carmen writes, uh, We're a young, baby-booming couple. My husband walks with a cane. We found Italy was very handicap-friendly. What other countries would you suggest for disabled travelers? Which would you strictly avoid? Well, I would have strictly avoided Italy. So if you found Italy really good, I, I think you're probably more rugged than a lot of people, and you'll do fine elsewhere. Um, all over Europe, they are trying to make things accessible, 
but at the same time, they're trying to protect the uh, their heritage and these old buildings that were built long before anybody cared about accessibility. So you'll find uh, nowhere in Europe is as easy from an accessibility point of view as the United States, but a lot of places are trying hard, and those who are uh, ingenious and industrious and know how to avoid the heat in the crowd of summer uh, and can equip themselves with good information about accessibility can do pretty well. At Europe Through the Backdoor, my company, we've written a book called Easy Access Europe, and it takes all of my travel information and reworks it with accessibility in mind. And we just cover the, the very core of Europe, but it's helpful for a lot of people. If we can help you in that regard, this book covers London, Paris, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the Rhine River. Thanks for your email, Carmen, and uh, continued happy travels with a cane or without. Jody from Salk Rapids, Minnesota. Salk Rapids, yes. am I saying that correctly? Yep, Salk Rapids is correct. All right, what's so, on your mind? Well, um, we actually just recently got back from a trip in Italy. We started in Venice and went south. And I actually, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I have two bathroom questions. Bathrooms okay <laughs> on this topic, on this show? This is a public radio. We can talk about bathrooms. Well, wonderful. Um, my first question is, is I noticed that a lot of the toilets in Italy don't have bathroom seats. This the is actual true. toilet seat? Yep. Is there a reason? I think they probably got tired of replacing them. It's almost a blessing in disguise because in a public toilet, if there is a bathroom seat, it's usually broken. And it's uh, sitting there in pieces and it's got a big crack that's just a place to collect germs. And just think of going to a toilet here and somebody took the seat off, you've got to sit on the rim. It's... Uh, that's a drag, isn't it? But that's the way well, it is. Well, it, it was just, and it was even in the restaurants, too. Actually, I mean, I actually kind of avoided yeah. public restrooms. They make toilets that way, come to think of it. They don't even, they just sell them without the liftable uh, seat in, in a lot See. of cases. I don't know what the story is, but uh, you'll have to live with that one. Okay, and my, my second one is, what is the official use of a bidet? Well, official use of a bidet... Tourist. Debated, certainly. <laughs> it's a very interesting point for tourists. Um, Europeans say it's to um, wash things that rub together when you walk. Okay. And, um, and I think Europeans use it as a way to um, clean up after uh, making love, actually. And it's very handy okay. for Europeans that way. You'll find that's a standard uh, part of the, the bathrooms all over Europe. Um, also, it's a way that you can have a little sponge bath so you don't have to use a shower when they don't want to use a lot of water. And also, tourists have all sorts of creative uses of bidets, which I think uh, infuriate a lot of hoteliers. They, <laughs> they use them to cool their, their six-packs of Coca-Cola, and they use them to, to, to soak their grapes and all sorts of things. But really, the bidet is a little sort of a way to take a quick shower when you don't want to take your whole body into the shower. All right. I'll consider that the official definition. Use so it on your trip. His, my husband soaked his shoes in it, so... Just don't use it as a toilet. I've had some... Uh, I've actually had a tour group that somebody on my group used a bidet as a toilet, and the hotelier said, I don't want to see your group in my hotel anymore. So we, that was oh, the end of our experience that's with that. Well, good luck with um, finding toilets with seats and using those bidets. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye. Uh, we've got John on the line from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, John. Hey, Rick. It's so great to talk to you. Thanks for calling. Sure thing. Uh, well, my wife and I are going to be traveling to Italy, and we had a question about luggage. Uh, when we've traveled in the past, we've gone to London and just kind of stayed there and gone to Germany and sort of driven around. And in all those times, we haven't really had to worry about our baggage. And this is going to be kind of our first time where we're going to be taking the train and we're thinking, you know, what are we going to do when we get into a town and maybe don't check into a room yet? Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that we have to worry about? Well, I wish I could say it's no problem, but things are, after in this post-9-11 world, there's a concern about security, and they don't like bags laying around, so they're That's a little tougher on this. Yeah. And I'm nope, thinking about... about the dog. Uh, when I'm in Italy, I, uh, I, I can think of a few cities where you can't find a place to check your bag, in which case you need to go to the hotel and, and leave your bag there, and that's kind of a headache. But, but generally, uh, in the last year, for instance, I was in Assisi where um, I wanted to sightsee and see the town of St. Francis. The train station is at the base of the hill, and typically with hill towns, you've got the train station in the valley, and you catch a, a bus that's sort of timed, a shuttle bus that's timed with the arrival of the train to take you up to the top of the hill town. And there was, uh, the lockers in Assisi were closed, but the little coffee shop had a, a locker that was open, uh, like a, a back room. Oh, neat. And what they're doing is, 
you need to have, uh, uh, they're just not letting you use uh, automated lockers because they consider that more dangerous. So right. you have to go to a little shop that will take a couple of dollars or a couple of euros and they'll check your bag for you. That worked fine for me in Assisi. I was in Pisa in the last year also. And of course, half of the people who are coming into Pisa just want to stop a couple hours to see the leaning tower and get out of there. Mm-hmm. And the lockers were not in use, but there was a baggage check place that was uh, wide open. And uh, again, you stand in line, you check your bag, it's perfectly safe, and you come back later pick it up and catch the train again. I've also noticed, uh, especially in the British Isles, they've got airport-type x-ray machines at the check desks, and uh, this is quite expensive, so you're going to pay 5 or 6 or $7 to leave your bag instead of the $1 or $2 we're, we're accustomed to, and that's just a cost of um, travel safety these days. But almost always you can find a way to check your bag. Oh, that's, that's great. How about... Um like with hotels, if you kind of show up early, do they usually, are they all right watching your bag? Or? No problem at all. They're always just happy to have you check in and crack it on. I come into a lot of towns after an overnight train ride, and I get to the right. hotel, and I say, I'm here. And they say, well, your room's going to be available sometime, but the people are still sleeping. They haven't checked out yet. And I say, well, can you take my bag? I'm going to go out and have fun, and uh, I, I can have a breakfast there if I want. They'll stow my bag. And usually when I come back, they've moved the bag into my room, and I'm, I'm ready to go. Oh, even better. Well, that sounds great. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks for your call. Sure thing. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye, John. And Lynn's on the line in Goshen, Indiana. Hi, Lynn. Hi. How are you doing? Actually, Goshen, Indiana. Goshen. i got to learn my American geography. Oh, it's all right. It's pretty close to Notre Dame, actually. Really? All right. Yeah. So you've been to Europe lately? Uh, No. It's actually our first trip out there. What Um, What are your plans? Well, my husband and myself and our will-be one-year-old... We're going to be going for two weeks at the end of April over to England. And we're going to meet up for sure with some friends that live just north of um, Northampton. But we kind of want to hit all the big sites, but we don't know how ambitious to get with an infant. So right. You'll have a one-year-old. Yeah. My goodness. Well, my wife and I have traveled with our kids every year since they were six months old, and they're, our oldest boy's 18 now. Uh-huh. And, you know, when the babies were like uh, infant, it was easier than when they were two or three. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you just need to bring, you need to kind of forget about packing light. You need to bring the gear you need. Yeah. <laughs> you need to bring a, a portable crib. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to bring a, a solid stroller so the baby can take a nap while you're out and about. Yeah, yeah. And I found that was a, a, just a godsend for us. Was to, I didn't bring the uh, the baby backpack. Mm-hmm. I carried our baby on my shoulders, and that, that really was fine when they were old enough to ride my shoulders instead of the backpack. Yeah, ours doesn't tolerate it very well. <laughs> okay, but the stroller was wonderful, and the travel crib was great. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, you got to just be realistic about how much ground you can cover. Things mm-hmm. are also in the flight. Make sure that you are aggressive in knowing what sort of support the airline can give you with a with a little baby. Uh huh. Because you'll get a bulkhead seat and you'll get a bassinet and you'll get some extra care if you let them know that you're going to be traveling with an mm-hmm. infant. Mm-hmm. We're thinking we're probably going to rent a car too, and yeah. we're not sure with like you know like European sizes of cars like. How small to go? Oh, you can, you, yeah, you, they've got medium-sized cars, which would be fine. And, and I was going to say you'd need to avoid public transportation. Mm-hmm. You'll want to have your own wheels. It's just basically, I learned, forget about packing light. I learned everything my wife thought was worth bringing was worth bringing. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, you might want to um, take the car seat from home or yeah. look into your rental place if they have a car seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good luck. Well, thank you. Let us know how it goes. All right. Okay, bye. Thanks, bye. And we've got Judy on the line in Kelso, Washington. Hi, Judy. It's nice to talk with you. Thanks for your call. Uh, My question, well, first I'd like to make a comment on how pleased I am with your TV shows about Israel, Turkey, Egypt, all the exotic places. Oh, yeah, I love doing those more more challenging destinations, thinking of Europe as a springboard for for those kind of places. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, How does one go about getting an able guide for these other exotic countries. Boy, you know, that's a very important issue. And when I was doing my TV show for public television in Egypt and in Israel, both of those places, I was just thinking, I was laying in bed at night thinking, my goodness, I've got to get a a tour program to these wonderful countries. And I was meeting so many people that uh, would be just great to help me in, in the countries and so on. Then it occurred to me, no, if you're going to do Israel and if you're going to do Egypt, you've got to really have a commitment to knowing that area. It's got to be your forte, your focus, and it would be a peripheral thing for me because I'm so um, 
Western Europe focused. Mm -hmm. uh, you want a company that is passionate about tourism in Israel or tourism in Egypt, and there are plenty of those, and they are um, struggling right now because there's tension in the mid Middle East, and mm -hmm. uh, it's not a good time to be organizing tours. But there's a, a huge industry for uh, tourism. You'll get a very good welcome. There's a wonderful infrastructure for tourism, and I would say most people who go there feel very comfortable traveling in Israel or Egypt, either on their own or with a group. Mm -hmm. How do you get a good guide? Um, you know, you just have to look around on the web. Ideally, talk to people who have been on these tours. If there's a way to get some feedback from people who have trusted a tour company and see how it goes, uh, you might pay a little more to book a tour through a travel agency, but then you're getting the advice of a travel agent who's been booking these tours for years and who has a lot of clients that have used these companies, and they would then be able to assure you that this is a, a reputable company, uh, and, and uh, that's probably a small price to pay for the assurance in that regard. Oh, it can be a fiasco. If you if you get stuck with the wrong tour company, it can mm -hmm. be just a disaster. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I'd rather just go to a country and get a hotel and then hire a local guide to take to be my guide, but not my tour organizer. That's what I'm aiming for. That's what I really would be the ideal. And there's a lot of hardworking independent tour guides that just are independent operators that uh, love to be booked for half a day. And, and ironically, the more you need them, the less they cost because you need them more in the cheaper countries. I was informed that in Israel and Turkey that there was a um, national registry or something, that there was an office of tourism. Oh, yeah. The tourist boards organize this. All right. And every country has a tourist board because the number one source of foreign revenue in a lot of these countries is tourism. And they've, uh, they want to protect their reputation and make sure that people who visit uh, their countries uh, work with reputable people. So could we contact the tourism board to ask? I would. Okay. And, uh, you know, and get used to the web. I mean, I just, oh, any, yes. anything you want. I, I just wanted a cooking school in Paris, and I, I Googled uh, cooking school Paris, tourism, English, and uh, I found Ooh. a great guide. So, you know, you could uh, pretty much uh, distill your travel dreams into, like, four words and put it on Google and, and hit search. Wonderful. Okay, Judy, thanks for your call. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Bye, Bye now. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.